Good evening. It's busy in the House of Commons tonight as Boris Johnson's Plan B restrictions and rule changes are being voted on. Let's just remind you what the four votes are. The first vote, which has happened already, was on new rules on mandatory mask wearing. The second, daily testing for people with COVID contacts to avoid self-isolation. The third, and the biggest one, COVID certification for venue entry. That's nightclubs and large sporting events, the so-called vaccine passport. That's the third vote. It hasn't happened yet. And the fourth, I think also very important, and that is mandatory vaccination for all those working for the NHS. Why does that matter? Well, because the NHS is short of staff, and at the moment there are 73,000 NHS staff who have not had the vaccine. And already we've seen the care home sector losing 20, 30, we're not sure of the figure, 20, 30,000 people uh, when that rule came in for care. So let's cross straight to Westminster and join GB News's political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, good evening. Uh, Nigel, in the last couple of minutes, Boris Johnson has suffered an absolutely large rebellion. Definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, the largest he's faced as leader. We were speculating, haven't we, all week about whether it may be 60, 70, 80 Conservative MPs who might rebel against the government. Uh, tonight, it looks like it could be just over 100 Conservative MPs, essentially almost a third of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. A massive blow to Boris Johnson, who has spent all afternoon uh, talking to, calling up, having meetings with, going around the tea rooms, holding a 1922 committee to try and cajole, convince, charm those MPs to back him. It does not appear to have worked. Let me bring you the actual result. This is on vaccine passports, as you say, being applied to things like nightclubs and large venues seated indoors uh, for 500 people, um, outdoors over 4,000. 369 votes have backed it, 126 have rejected it. So it has passed. It will now be law in England. It will come into effect. But my word, that is one hell of a rebellion. Now, we know there were probably DUP MPs in that. We know there were 12 Lib Dems in that. There are probably a couple of Labour MPs too. But you knock those off, you're still getting above 100. We have to wait until we get the actual tellers of the details who, who pass through each lobby. But this is a very significant rebellion and way above what government sources have been suggesting uh, to me today, uh, way above what the speculation was leading up to this vote. This is damaging for the Prime Minister because it means that not only has he not managed to convince a large section of his own party about the necessity for these uh, vaccine passports, Nigel, but he has had to rely essentially on the Labour Party, Her Majesty's opposition, to get it through. No, absolutely, Darren. I have to say I'm slightly surprised by these numbers. Uh, normally what happens, of course, with a proposed rebellion, it gets talked up in the press, it gets hyped. And then, as you say, it's a phone call from the Prime Minister, it's a visit from the whip, it's a come on, old boy, don't let the side down, or it's a, now I've heard you might have reselection problems with your local constituency committee, or it's a, well, surely at some point you want promotion. And, of course, at the really low end of it, it is what well, I'm sure this particular Sunday newspaper would not like to hear this personal story about you. And we know how these things work. Darren, I'm just thinking, how many members of parliament, how many conservative members of parliament hold ministerial positions or positions where they have collective responsibility? It's over 100, isn't it? 
yeah, that, it is, it is. And so, in effect, you would expect 100% of them uh, to back the government. There may well still be resignations. We might expect some PPSs possibly to, to resign over this issue. There was speculation that maybe upwards of 10 of those might rebel against the government. I'd be surprised, given the size of this rebellion, if we do not see some resignations from uh, PPSs, parliamentary private secretaries. Um, I, I, you're right in saying, though, this is very significant for the government because it is much larger. There is an awful lot of MPs on the payroll. And it's interesting, isn't it, as well, uh, Nigel, that I think many of these MPs aren't just necessarily the kind of old guards who have had jobs in the past, who've served in cabinets, who, you know, are not easily whipped that much yeah. and do feel this is an egregious step by the government. This is an awful lot of red wallers. This is an awful lot actually, and we'll, we'll get the details, i say, when we get the names in. But I've talked to them today. This is an awful lot of MPs who were elected in 2019, who in some ways owe their election to Boris Johnson himself. But they are saying that this is a line in the sand that they're not prepared to walk over. And that's really significant for a newly elected MP to essentially defy yeah. the government so early on in a parliament or so early on in their career. No, it is. I mean, Darren, if you take out those on the payroll, those with ministerial positions and jobs that demand collective responsibility, you then look at this rebellion in percentage terms as being very, very significant indeed. And your point about the 2019 intake, you know, I've met a lot of them over the last you know, year or so, and I've noticed they're a very different kind of Conservative MP. And many of them, different class, different type of schools, different type of background, um, and, and a certain, how can I put it, self-confidence in what they know and what they believe. So that, I mean, that does paint a picture to me of a very different party. So Boris Johnson has tried everything, you know, and we even heard the spin coming out of a 1922 committee a couple of hours ago that they'd banged the desk lids in traditional manner and he'd won round the room and he'd spoken with the right mood. I mean, he's lost control of this, hasn't he? Yeah, it's really interesting, though. And I have to say, there were the, the spin coming from, from government sources, of course, as you would expect, saying that people were folding. But there were even sense from the rebel MPs I was talking to uh, that some of their colleagues would peel away. Many of them will be shocked by the size of this, I think, as uh, well. I think we're hearing a figure, not confirmed yet, of 103 Conservative right, MPs, okay. it seems, uh, have rebelled. Uh, ju just to to kind of move away from the immediate rebellion, because there's a few other interesting things that have transpired in the last kind of hour or so. First of all, that during that meeting that you were talking about, the 1922 committee, essentially, yeah. when Boris Johnson addressed all Conservative MPs, he did not rule out recalling Parliament over the possibility of further restrictions here in England. Now, that is absolutely fascinating, really interesting, most notably after this rebellion uh, tonight, because what we've seen this afternoon is Mark Drayford and Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland and Wales go much further in telling and advising people, essentially, to limit their social contacts in the days leading up to Christmas. They're also talking about bringing back in social distancing in settings like shops, restaurants and bars. One would have thought that if the UK government that applies to England were thinking now of doing that, if Boris Johnson want to impose further restrictions with the size of this rebellion tonight, it would be, I think, almost impossible for him not to recall Parliament. Yeah, and so then you would have to suggest that given where MPs are now, would that pass? Very well, difficult to see. Well, uh, plan is, C. It's very tricky yes. for Boris Johnson. Plan C being announced on and, Saturday, and I just, Parliament. Just finally, I, I, and I, 
Go on. Yeah, and I just, just very funny, I'll add that it is tricky because this is not the end of what is proving to be a very difficult week. We have still got that investigation by Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, that's due to report, we think, at the end of this week into the alleged parties that place in Downing Street. Could be very difficult for the Prime Minister. And then we've got that by-election in Shropshire. Let's not forget about that, where there is real concern that the Conservatives could lose that seat. 22, 23,000 seat majority, Leave voting should be solidly Tory. The fact that it's even in doubt is of concern. This, again, we said last week was difficult for the Prime Minister. This could be the start of another even more difficult week for Boris Johnson. It does feel that way. Darren, don't go away. I know that right now people are voting, MPs are voting on mandatory vaccines for the NHS. We'll get the results from you in a few moments' time but now I'm joined by Conservative commentator and a man that worked in number 10 with Boris Johnson, Tim Montgomery. Tim, good evening. Good evening. Well, I was surprised that the rebellion was 103. Were you? Gobsmacked, Nigel. Flabbergasted. Stunned. This is a rebellion way beyond uh, my expectations. As someone who's sceptical about the measures being introduced, I'm encouraged. Um, I think it's a sign, if we needed another sign, of how Boris Johnson's authority inside the Conservative Party is waning dramatically. And um, a little bit perhaps contrary to what you've just been discussing with Darren, I think it makes further measures much less likely. I think if Boris Johnson was now to introduce um, further restrictions on our liberty, the, if the Conservative Party in the Parliament is willing to rebel on this scale, for the measures already announced, the black eye he would get from them for further measures would be enormous. So unless we see very significant changes in the um, transmission data now for the virus, I think we probably won't see any toughening of the uh, COVID re restrictions that we're already living under. Yeah, I mean, I kind of thought maybe this Saturday we got a a statement, a Plan C statement at 6pm this Saturday. Um, and, and yes, as you say, if they were to recall the House on Monday, it wouldn't be 103 rebels. Uh, there'd be a few more dozen perhaps added on to that. I was making the point, Tim, that if you take the payroll out of the number of yeah. MPs, I mean, this is a stunning level of rebellion. And yeah. they really have done their damnedest over the last 48 hours to win people around. I mean, in the end... Was it the power of the argument that actually a vaccine passport gives you a full sense of security, uh, doesn't necessitate any recent testing of any kind at all and could make you a super spreader, whereas actually the unvaccinated who wants to go to a you know, Premier League football match, who has to do a lateral flow test that day, uh, you know, ha has to show they've got a negative. So was it the p logic and the power of that argument that led to 103 or was this actually the first little referendum on Boris Johnson's leadership? I think it's probably all of those things wrapped, uh, both of those things all wrapped together, Nigel. Um, wow. I think a lot of Tory MPs, I've been sort of speaking to uh, MPs over the last few days, just trying to gauge where they're coming from. And they really just regard the compulsion element that the government seems to be um, embarking upon as counterproductive. They've talked to their constituents, those people who are vaccine sceptical, and I think they think if the government starts to mandate vaccines in any way, it actually increases the scepticism. Yeah. The people Tim, that don't Tim, want vaccines. Tim, stay with me. Stay with me. Yeah. We're going back to the Commons to get the fourth result. Eyes to the right. 
385, the nose to the left 100, so the ayes have it, the ayes have it, unlock. Okay, so that was mandatory vaccines for NHS staff, 385 in favour of NHS staff having to be vaccinated, but there were 100 against. Don't know what the breakdown of that is yet, as you know, the point was made by Darren a few moments ago with the previous vote. 126 opposed vaccine passports, of which 103 were Conservatives. But whichever way we cut this, whichever way we cut this, this is still at least, at least 80 plus Conservative members of Parliament that have said no to mandatory vaccinations for NHS staff. Uh, Tim Montgomery, are you, still, are you still there with me? I'm still here, yeah, still here. Tim, did you, did you pick up those numbers? I did, yeah. Not quite as big as the third vote, um, the rebellion we saw in the third vote, but still way beyond what we were expecting at the weekend. You know, the Sunday papers, the Sunday blogs were talking about rebellions of 50 to 70. It looks like it's well north of that. And that's after. Now, Boris Johnson did. You've already um, sort of uh, hinted at it. And um, Boris Johnson did roll out all of his you know, measures. He went and spoke to the parliamentary party. The whips have been working the phones. The Tory MPs have been told, don't destabilise the party in a week when we have an important by-election. Don't make me rely on Labour votes. And yet, still, across <laughs> every cohort of Conservative MP, Tory MPs have rebelled. And, you know, I'm a Conservative activist. I'm a Conservative supporter. Frankly, the Conservative Party has embarrassed me over the last couple of weeks with all this nonsense about parties, etc. But actually, I'm proud of the Parliamentary Party tonight. I'm proud that so many Conservative MPs have been willing to stand up for our basic liberties. Um, I'm willing to consider uh, strict measures if the pandemic really was as threatening as it was a year ago. I see no evidence of that yet. And so I'm really proud that Conservative MPs have stood up for liberty and stood up against the prospect of another lockdown with all the huge consequences that would mean for mental health, a failure to treat cancer promptly, heart disease, etc. So I take enormous comfort from, from these votes tonight. I really do. Tim, do you know what? I agree with that 100%. I think it is absolutely a good thing uh, that they've stood up for liberty. Uh, and that's irrelevant, whether you're Conservative or whether you're left of centre. This is about the relationship between the individual and the state. And I think on health grounds, actually, vaccine passports are almost certainly counterproductive anyway. Now, by-elections, of course, midterm by-elections yeah. can, can be volatile things, can produce all sorts of results. But given the couple of weeks that Boris Johnson's had, I wonder just how important is North Shropshire now? Uh, very important, I think. I've heard really, I don't know what you've heard, Nigel, I've heard really contradictory things from people. I've spoken to our friends in the Liberal Democrats, I've spoken to Conservatives, and no one really knows what's going to happen. I think a lot of it depends upon the turnout that we receive on Thursday. But what the Conservative Central Office uh, High Command are worried about is, you know North Shropshire. North Shropshire is a very Brexity seat. These are the kind of people who vote Conservative reliably. They're not the kind of people who would normally entertain voting for the Liberal Democrats or Labour. If the Conservatives do really poorly in the vote on Thursday, and that means not even losing, just you know, uh, having a big swing against them, 
That, I think, will put the fear of God into Conservative MPs, because Conservative MPs will think, if a constituency like this, that back leaving the European Union so soundly, are willing to entertain voting for the opposition, what will happen in my own backyard? Yeah. And that, I'm afraid, is the basic sort of underlying fragility of the Prime Minister's position at the moment. He's only... His biggest asset with the party has been that he's been looked like a winner. If he stopped looking like a winner, he's not really regarded as the most competent prime minister. He's not regarded as the most sort of ideologically sound. He's regarded as someone who delivers votes for them. If they stop believing that, he's got the firebreak of Christmas. But if they stop believing that, he really is in serious trouble. Dear Montgomery. Thank you very much for your frank analysis. Thank you for joining us here on GB News. Well, the question to you folks, are these MPs right to rebel? Let me know what you think. GBviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet at GBnews. Don't forget, you can send in your Barrage the Farage questions for the end of the show. In a moment, we're going to get reaction from a publican and a former chief executive of the Royal College of Nursing. So are these Tory backbench MPs right to rebel over Plan B rules? Well, Karen has got in touch with us and says, Tory rebellion, what a joke. Just a load of bottlers, more interested in their careers than voting for what they believe in. Well, quite a lot did rebel. Carol says, unfortunately, Nigel, I don't think the rebellion will be large enough. Well, I'm not sure. I think it's pretty big. Roy says, I personally think that the Prime Minister has done his best through the unfortunate COVID-19 pandemic, and I support his efforts. Cornelius says, it appears the Conservative Green Party are in coalition with the Labour Party. Who is running this country? Well, just look at what Keir Starmer did last night with his address to the nation. It was just Boris Johnson with a slightly neater haircut because everything he said was the same. With the one exception, he didn't use the word emergency. Pamela says to me, really good to see 103 MPs have stood up to these restrictions. Hopefully this is just a start. Let's get back to Westminster and rejoin GB News' political editor, Darren McCaffrey. So, Darren, uh, that fourth vote on mandatory vaccines for NHS workers, uh, the rebellion there was 100. Do you know yet how many of those were Conservatives? I think we're probably going to look maybe at around 70 to 80. It's quite difficult to uh, work out until we've got the actual figures. Let's go through the votes as we can, one by one, of what's just been voted in Parliament. First of all, on face coverings, that happened about, what, uh, nearly an hour ago now. That passed pretty handsomely in the Commons. This is, of course, the extension of face masks to things like shops and cinemas and theatres and so on. 441 uh, votes to 41 in that regard. So the government won that reasonably easy, but still a, you know, not a, uh, a very small uh, government rebellion, still sizable by any uh, estimates. Then when it comes uh, to vaccine passports, the really controversial one, and a huge whopping rebellion uh, for the government in that, 369 votes to 126, uh, that passing essentially with Labour votes, given the size of the Conservative rebellion. And then finally, the one you just touched upon, uh, which is the compulsory vaccination for frontline NHS staff and social care staff. Well, that passed by 385 to 100. Uh, let's bring you the breakdown now of the, the most significant vote, which is uh, the vaccine passports won, 126 
voted against it. It looks like there was a rebellion of 96 or 98 when you include the two Ellers, tellers by the Conservative Party. So it's slightly lower than we initially thought, as always. It depends on who the other MPs for the other parties are. But 98 MPs defied their government, defied the Prime Minister and voted not to bring in vaccine passports. That is by far the largest rebellion Boris Johnson has faced. It's not terribly far off, it must be said, the rebellion that Theresa May faced in her first vote on the first reading or the first vote on Brexit. That was 118, so it's not that far off, uh, Nigel. The other parties, uh, eight Labour MPs, uh, also voted against it. Six of the DUP, uh, 10 of the Lib Dems, uh, and a couple of others uh, as well. So really tricky ter territory for the Prime Minister this. Uh, we're hearing from some senior Conservative MPs tonight suggesting that he needs to change, that this is not a way to govern the party, that he has not got a sizable chunk of the party with him, and that in the end, this is Sir Geoffrey Clifton Brown suggesting that there could be a leadership contest next year. He said it's very much on the cards, quote unquote. That's from a pretty senior. He's the treasurer of the 1922 committee saying that a leadership challenge against Boris Johnson next year is on the cards. Where does this all leave us, of course, with our everyday lives? Well, it means that these restrictions on face masks, on vaccine passports and for NHS staff, well, they are now law and will come into effect. The first two immediately the, uh, the, uh, the, the regulations for health workers, that is next year. But we are not out of this yet. We saw what Nicola Sturgeon did today. We saw what Mark Rayford did today. There have been suggestions in government uh, that some want to go further with restrictions in the run-up to Christmas. Boris Johnson forced tonight to say if that is the case, Parliament will be recalled. The question is, given the size of this rebellion on Plan B, could he get further restrictions through Parliament without causing an even bigger rebellion in his party? That's how much damage has been done to the Prime Minister's authority tonight. Yes. I mean, if he announces Plan C on Saturday night and recalls Parliament on Monday or Tuesday, it's likely to be more than 100 that rebel, isn't it? Yeah, that, almost certainly. I mean, these MPs already think this goes way far enough. Now, it is possible, of course, that things could get dramatically worse. We know the evidence around the Omicron variant is quite sketchy in some regards. Yes, it seems to be milder. There seems to be some positive news again out of South Africa tonight about cases slowing down in terms of the amount in which they're growing, if you like. And that is good news. But we are looking at... As the health secretary said yesterday, 200,000 cases a day at the moment. You only have to spend some time in this building behind me to know that people are being infected at the moment. Eight, eight MPs today tested positive. So things could change quickly in terms of the science, and that might change the dynamics of all of this, as Tim Montgomery was talking about. But yeah. at the moment, you would have to say the government's chances of trying to bring in further restrictions given tonight's vote, well, they're pretty shot in the water, I would suggest. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much indeed, Darren. Let's go to the hospitality and catering sector. Let's go to publican Adam Brooks from Essex. Adam, these vaccine passports, they're not going to affect pubs at this stage, but they are affecting nightclubs. Uh, do you fear, do you fear in hospitality, in the pub trade, this is the beginning of a slippery slope? Uh, I do indeed. And I think a lot of the language w worries me uh, and a lot of the language from backbenchers that, that feel this is a, a initial step to, to vaccine passports being rolled out to more venues. Um, there, there's genuine worry in the hospitality industry. And 
you know, when I've got people like Wes Streeting tweeting me and, and I'm listening to the PM saying, this is pro hospitality, this is, this is for you, we don't want it. We do not want it. I, I, I know nightclub bosses, you know, I, I used to have nightclubs myself. They do not want vaccine passports. They do not want vaccine COVID ID or certification, whatever you call it. You know, this is going to put a lot of people off the hassle and out of principle, really. You know, we live in a free, we're meant to live in a free society, Nigel. And yeah. a lot of people see well, this, they see this as a police state, you know. Adam, I have to tell you, mate, I like pubs. I like a beer, as you well know. Um, if we get to the stage where I have to show a COVID passport to go and buy a pint, I will not be going. And I'm sorry to say that to you as a publican, but that's just how I feel yeah. about it. And I suspect quite a lot of your punters would say the same. The other point about this, yeah. maybe, maybe your industry ought to start standing up and shouting a little bit more loudly, is I've been utterly convinced by the argument that if you have a vaccine passport, that might mean you were injected six months ago and you've not been tested since. You may well be positive and carrying the virus, whereas if you've had a lateral flow test, you know that in a certain point in a few hours before, you've tested negative. So therefore, actually, vaccine passports could be a means of spreading, not stopping infection in hospitality yeah. venues. And I, I just urge you, Adam, and your industry to start shouting that a bit more loudly. I mean, I, I can't shout any louder, to be honest, Nigel. I don't know if you look at my tweets at all or, or, or not, but, you know, I'm quite obsessive on there and I understand that. You know, my wife even tells me I'm, I'm obsessive. But when you believe in something so strongly and, you know, I've got personal reasons why I love pubs so much. My dad took his first pub in 1964. It's in our blood. He's not around no more. And I know he'd be fighting for his industry. And yeah. I'm not going to give up. And, you know, luckily I can use my medium on Twitter. I, I don't know why I've got so many followers. And, you know, I am getting responses from MPs. I've, I've got to mention Steve uh, Barkley. He's, be, he's been unbelievable. Um, not Steve Barkley. Uh, <laughs> He's, he's got out of my head now. He's, uh, what, but, Baker you know, got, or Baker back? Steve Baker. Right, I'm going fine. to apologise to him because I've, right. I've been speaking to him. He'll week. forgive you now. He's been, I hope so. Steve Baker has been amazing um, for voicing, you know, the concerns and opposing these Plan B. Um, I can't thank him enough, you know. And they, right. they, I can't thank, I can't well, thank Adam, the hundred I, or so. Listen, whatever. keep fighting the good fight and we'll yeah. come back to you regularly as somebody representing the pub trade with as much passion as you've got. So thank you. Well, I'm joined now by Dr. Peter Carser, independent health consultant, former chief executive of the Royal College of Nursing and vice president of the Institute of Customer Service. Peter, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, Nigel. Now, I know the NHS are struggling for staff and want to recruit staff. But given there are 73,000 NHS staff currently who've chosen not to have the vaccine, does this vote in the House of Commons tonight for mandatory vaccinations for all NHS staff, not just those in touch with patients, does it actually, in your eyes, make sense? Well, I think it gives the government a huge problem, and that problem will be passed on to the NHS the managers, uh, they've now got four and a half months to convince 73,000 people that this vaccination is in their interest. I mean, I personally 
wish every NHS member of staff did have the vaccination because I think it works. Um, what we would dread is getting into somewhere like late Feb, early March and finding there are tens of thousands of people that yeah. still refuse to have it and then we end up losing staff. So the NHS right now has got a huge problem. All hospitals and clinics are running hot. The government are really going to struggle to get this million uh, people a day vaccinated. Now, on top of that, what you're going to have to start is an exercise, and that will have to start straight away. So during this difficult winter period to convince staff to have this vaccination. And I just dread the thought of thousands of wow. nurses, porters, all sorts of people, doctors, physios losing their job. Peter, we saw this in the care sector, and I don't know how many people have left the care sector as a result of this exact same policy, but it's somewhere between 20 and 40,000 people. And I think however much you encourage, however much you bully, whatever you do, there's a certain percentage of people just won't take this vaccine. And I wonder whether just making sure they were daily tested might be a more grown-up way of approaching this. Well, I mean, <clears throat> governments, as you know, can change their minds. And uh, we don't yep. know where we're going this, with this latest variant. If it turns out to be not as virulent uh, as is predicted, and yep. come January, February, things have eased off, and they may have um, a way of getting out of this by saying, hey, look, we did this because we thought it was our only option, and they may have to rethink it. If, on the other hand, um, things do not settle down and we have thousands of NHS staff off sick with COVID, uh, then the government have equally got a problem. Um, and then they've got to balance up what is the right option. Whichever way you cut it, it's very, very difficult. But what, what I'm hoping, well, not just hoping, what I know, uh, because I was an NHS trust chief exec for 12 years and I've worked in it for long enough, managers senior nurses, directors of nursing, consultant staff, and many others will be doing their level best to have personal conversations with individuals to explain the virtues and the benefit of the vaccination so that we don't end up in this nightmare scenario of good, decent people losing their jobs. And presumably, would that mean they'd need two doses or three doses? Well, uh, three doses is what you need. I mean, currently... 93% of NHS staff have had the first dose. 90% yep. have had the second dose. I don't know how many are having the, the, the booster, but it will be much less than that. So what we need to do is get the second dose in. Um, well, no, sorry, we need to get the 93% up near to 100%, the 90 up to it, and then the booster are coming online wow. after that. So it's a, it's a huge challenge. And, you know, the I say the NHS is right now under huge pressure, particularly, I'm sorry to say, for the number of people in intensive care units who did not have the vaccination and who are saying to nurses, I wish I hadn't listened to that. Well, but well, we're, in for, yeah, we're I, in for a difficult time. I just want to be slightly careful, Peter, on that one, because the one or two government ministers have slightly given the impression that virtually everybody in intensive care is unvaccinated. Yeah, and from yeah. what I can see, it's about 50-50. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a huge number are in there. And I, I feel particularly for women who are pregnant who took this advice um, and are now regretting it. And so in whatever way we can, we need to get across to people. The vaccine is safe. Take it. It's good for you uh, and it's good well, for society. 
I hear what you say very clearly, uh, but there are some who are just not going to be convinced. Peter, we'll come back to this as the next few months go by. And thank you for joining me. Well, coming up next, it's Talking Pines with personal trainer and former Love Islander, Frankie Foster. The GB News pub is open. I'm joined by former Love Islander, fitness coach, racing man, Frankie Foster. Frankie, welcome to Talking Pints. Very good to see you. Now, Love Island, there's a massive following of youngsters that watch this programme. Not not a fan yourself? I I have watched it. (laughs) I wouldn't say it's quite for me, but I have met a few former contestants, actually. yeah, I mean, there's, young people follow this and every twist and turn of it. And, yeah, there's huge criticism of the way it's done in the media and all the rest of it. But you kind of go from complete obscurity mm-hmm. to suddenly you've got a big social media following. Yeah. Um, what was it like doing it? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I always say, when people say to me, oh, you, you know, you're on Love Island, or some people might say, I didn't know you are on Love Island. I was never a Love Island fan. Um, it wasn't something I watched. So this was pure opportunism on your part? Yeah, I, I mean, it was, a, it was a bit of a why not. And I, I always say, I think the whole reason they put me on was um, slightly out of curiosity because I think a lot of people would go to their interview and be really keen to get on and they ask you questions like, do you want fame or do you want money? And right. I kind of stood on the point, I wanted a holiday and I wasn't actually that bothered. <laughs> um, so I think they chucked me in there on a bit of a whim and thought, you know, maybe he's got something about him, he's not too bothered about this. Um, so it was a bit of a why not for me. Um, obviously, you, you know, you understand that the show's big. The year I went on it was the kind of year it really took off. Mm. Um, so I think now when people go on it, they really know the impact it has. Whereas I was kind of in between, I was probably a bit naive to how uh, big it could be. Um, but yeah, I mean, I always, I've always tried to carry on as I was. Um, as you said, I'm not still working fitness. I still work in racing, which is, which is a big yeah. uh, passion of mine. I never got too hung up on or wanted to be a reality TV star, which don't get me wrong. Some people do, and that can be great, but I never wanted to Yeah, you've to be, kind of pivoted away from that. Life. Yeah, I didn't want to be, didn't want to be Mr. Love Island. <laughs> um, but you do get a, you do get a huge following, and and that then gives you the opportunity to do what you want with it. So loads of people suddenly either know who you are, you're yeah. a familiar face, they see you on social media. It gives you kind of pathways to do what you want to do. And for me, that went, that was going back to personal training, and then recently kind of picking up in the horse racing world as well. Yeah, I want to talk about the horse racing mm-hmm. stuff. So I mean, has horse racing always been a love? Yeah. So this is where this works quite nice. I grew up in Cheltenham. Um, naturally, you kind of get introduced to it. In the China. festival? Yeah, of course. So I probably went to the first The super time. spreader event that happened <laughs> yeah, in 2020. Was. Yeah, I was invited yeah, and didn't yeah, go. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, 2019, I think. Yeah, the 19, last, yeah. The last kind of last hurrah before COVID, that was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, got, it, that's why it works nice, is because it started off as people saying, do you want to present, present this award or do you want to do this? And as a sports fan, it's kind of like asking a Man United fan, do you want to go and interview... You know, so you're doing, you, you, you're doing live commentary and stuff like that? Yes, yeah, so I'm working on a new project uh, called Race Day, which we are, in front of you just mentioned me before about horse racing, you know, where's it going with young people? A yeah. lot of the work we're doing is... Because I worry about that, because <laughs> racing, racing used to be readily available, yeah, yeah. terrestrial television, mm-hmm. John McCrerick with the big sideburns, the loud voice on Channel 4 News, and some real characters on television mm-hmm. with racing. And it's rather like cricket and other sports. When it's yep. there on terrestrial television, very big audiences. Mm-hmm. And they might watch it casually, but they're exposed to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas 
you know, you want to watch horse racing on, on, on telly at home, now you're going to be paying... Yeah, well, I mean, IT, ITV, ITV are doing brilliant coverage and are getting more coverage, okay. which is great. Rachel Blackmore is nominated for the Sports Star Award, which is massive for racing. And just to remind people who aren't racing fans, she did something quite big this year, didn't she? Yeah, well, I mean, rode a Gold Cup winner, uh, rode a couple of winners at the festival. Uh, sorry, not a Gold Cup winner, Grand National. National. Um, second in the Gold Cup. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolute horse racing legend. Brilliant for the sport. So to get that recognition is good, but... What we're doing is more of the, the fun stuff, as you said, bringing a younger crowd. We go to race days, we show the day out, we show punters having a good time, we show what's on at the races, as well as the jockeys in training. So it's been, it's been real good fun. We've come in from an angle which may, maybe makes people relax a little bit as well, rather than a big TV production. So in can you bring young people into racing? 100%. There's a lot going on which is, which is brilliant for it. I mean, social media is massive for it, um, showing a good day out. I, I think the angle you've got to take is getting people there for the day out, and then if they enjoy it, they come back, and then they start to learn. What about the punting? And the punting, yeah. But I mean, that's. I mean, se- I think second to that. How you talk about that these days is difficult, isn't it? Um, no, it's a big part of racing. But a lot, a, lot, a lot of people frown on gambling. Uh, they do. I've actually got a question for you. Go on. Go on. <laughs> I asked uh, my followers and some of the racing fans wanted to know if you had an anti-post bet for Cheltenham. I haven't done, no. But in the past, in the past, I, my, the biggest win I had yeah. on the Cheltenham Festival was the day when, going the wrong way, Desert Orchid won the Gold Cup. <laughs> I think Desert Orchid was 7-2 to two yeah. that day, starting price, maybe 3-1. to one. Mm-hmm. So I did win good money on that. Um, I've been to a lot of Cheltenham Festivals over the years. And plenty of flat racing yeah. days as well. Yeah. Um, I like a bet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't bet very often. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the discipline that you need. You bet when you really fancy having a bet. Yeah, yeah. You have a bet because it's a day, day out. out. It's part of a day out. You go and what's, um, what's in your pocket. But I've, seen lots of, but I've seen lots of prom- problem gamblers over the years. Uh, no desire to be one of them. Yeah. But if you can bring young people into racing, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, the personal training side of things that you're doing, mm-hmm. which I, I guess lockdown in a way has been good for that, hasn't it, really? Because um, hearts yeah, changed, changed, obviously, how we work. But yeah. I was fortunate in that I started to move my business and the way I coach online before covid and then as COVID's hit, more and more people have started to work with people. Obviously, that was your only option at one point was to yeah. work virtually with people. Um, but I think it's been really good. One, people to kind of wake up and think about their health a little bit more. Um, and two, you know, working with people online and bringing communities to people when they've been through lockdown was massive. We, you know, we were doing stuff like pub quizzes with our clients um, on Zoom because as much of it is getting fit, um, and being healthy, it's also kind of giving people a bit of direction and a community to fall back on as well when there wasn't too much going on. So it's, it's been and what a would you different say, year. What would you say to older people, people in their 50s, 60s, perhaps mm-hmm. into their 70s, who yep. maybe haven't really done very much for 20 years or yep. 30 years, <laughs> and they may be carrying a, bit of, a little bit of weight, or maybe they lost a bit of weight? Yeah. And I've lost 20 pounds well since lockdown, yeah, since, since, since lockdown yeah. first began. Half the country have lost weight, half the country have put it on. <laughs> yeah, but, it goes I mean, one way or the other normally. Is there a message of encouragement in terms 100%. of 100%. We've training. just took on a couple of clients uh, in their 50s. So I love working with older people because I'd say the work you can do there is probably more rewarding. So there's still hope for me? 100%. Yeah. And so there's some, when, <laughs> when, uh, when somebody that comes to me that hasn't been doing much and um, doesn't really know where to start, and as you said, maybe for the last 20 years they've been fairly inactive, yeah the progression they can see, because you're going from doing nothing to some basic strength training, eating a little bit better, it's going to be more rewarding than somebody that has been quite active and they want to just... 
tighten the screw. Okay. And how long, how long does it take to turn that round? Um, I mean, it depends. Let's say, let's say you came to me. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'd say in three months you could be feeling a, a different man. Three months of absolute murder. I just know <laughs> that it would be. We thank Frankie Foster for joining us here on Talking Pints. It's time for Barrage the Farage. It's the end of the show. You send your questions in. I don't get to see them before. Dave asks me, can Boris Johnson recover in the polls and win the next general election? Well, history, politics, people's lives are full of the Big Dipper. You know, we're up at the top, we're down at the bottom. And Boris has bounced back in the past from all sorts of scandals. Uh, I just think something has changed. I think it's somebody we used to find Boris very entertaining, very amusing. We perhaps knew that he wasn't always quite as honest as he might need to be. Uh, but I think somehow when you're prime minister, uh, the standard that's expected of you is a little bit higher even than being the mayor of London. And I don't think you'll ever see Boris's personal popularity back where it was. Doesn't mean he won't survive as leader, but something says to me, something says to me, this time next year, I'm not so sure he'll be there. Lewis asks me, what do you think of the mandatory vaccinations for the NHS frontline workers? I think it's monstrous. I think we're going too far. As I've made the point earlier about vaccine passports, if people, if people have lateral flow tests on the day, they're likely to be even safer in terms of spreading the virus than those who got a vaccine passport from something that was injected into them months ago and haven't been tested since. Right, what do you think? Mandatory vaccines for I, anybody? I'm vaccinated myself. I'd encourage people to be vaccinated, but I don't think that we should put regulations on what you can and can't do. There you see. People go on Love Island. They're not all stupid. They actually have opinions. <laughs> and some of them really incredibly sensible <laughs> ones. Right, I'm done. It's over for the evening. 